Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Soho Art Materials. In 1999, they opened their first shop on Grand Street with a handful of sketchbooks, brushes, paint, and their Trimar stretcher bars. From that point, they've been an integral part of the artistic fabric of New York City. Soho takes pride in what they do as the last independent art supply shop in New York City, and they continue to keep their product assortments and standards high. In 2015, they designed and engineered an aluminum stretcher bar system with the same tongue and groove assembly as a standard wood stretcher. These patented aluminum bars can't warp or twist and are 100% keyable in the corners and cross braces. I've been using them for a while now and these things always lay flat against the wall. They're super sturdy. And you can find out more about them at SohoArtMaterials.com. Sound and Vision is supported by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is an employee-owned company that makes the best artist materials for making that you can get. Over the last 25 years or so, I've been using Golden acrylics, mediums, and materials, and I stand by the quality in their products. They make acrylics that stay wet longer, they dry flat, mediums to make you paint super thick and beautifully fluid. They also make Williamsburg oil paints and core watercolors as well. You can find Golden in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the fine coffee makers at Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum has amazing coffee beans that you can order straight to your door. On their website, you can choose from different roasts from different origins, and you can even get a coffee subscription where you can get different beans delivered to your door each week or month. I'm on this subscription plan and it's amazing. As a coffee fanatic, getting new roasts all the time delivered fresh to the door is amazing. If you get to Seattle, you can even see a 10-foot by 40-foot mural of mine in their 6th and Bell Street shop. Check out Fulcrum Coffee Roasters at fulcrumcoffee.com. Nat Mead is a Brooklyn-based painter and educator who uses his work to reflect on the complex feelings that surround the experience of moving through different phases of life. Nat received his BFA from the University of Oregon and his MFA from Pratt. His work has been shown in numerous group and solo exhibitions nationally and internationally, and he's been reviewed in publications such as Art Forum, Juxtapose, The Boston Globe, Artsy, and Hyperallergic. He attended the Skowhegan School for Painting and Sculpture in 2009, the Sharp Walenta Studio Program in 2016, the Siena Art Institute in 2018, and the James Castle House Summer Residency in Idaho in summer of 2021. Nat lives and works in Brooklyn, New York, and he and I talk about moving, music, sports, stories, and much more. Here's our conversation. that you just kind of like downshift a little as far as your parenting intensity and you're like well it's all right <laughs> yeah or is it just as intense um you know 
that's hard. I think it's hard to quantify. My my yeah. my first kid had um, my first kid had some pretty serious developmental delays. He has a he has a disability, mm-hmm. uh, like a neurogenetic disorder. So that was so intense early on, and just wrapping my head around that and what that meant. Um, yeah, that it's so different with the other two. I mean, they just it's there. It's just there's so much less worry and so much less. Um, advocacy needed but right i will say this that i feel like two to three is a bigger jump than one to two it felt that way i felt like two to three at times feels impossible (laughs) i I can only imagine yeah yep i mean that's the you know it it's wonderful but it is a lot you know Absolutely. Yeah, it is wonderful. And I, I feel like when I reflect on it, kind of when I, when I have a little time, like in the evening, I reflect and all I feel is lucky and mostly, most of what yeah. I feel is fortunate and um, <laughs> loving and all of those things. But like this morning, like my daughter Opal was four, wouldn't, I have to make three different breakfasts because they all want different things. Oh, yeah. And she wouldn't eat her <laughs> eggs because they were a little not as yellow. They were more brown. And I just, I, it was just a complete, You got the palate wrong. You put too much umber in it. <laughs> yeah. Until my older son sat down and started eating her eggs and then she flipped out. Oh, so to, yeah. And so it was a complete standoff. And in those moments, I was, I'm just like, what, what is going on? I just feel so like out of out of like I don't like I'm not good at it and I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm hitting that age where I start I'm really starting to negotiate the differences between I mean it was always there, but I guess I'm a little more reflexive. You know what I mean of uh, like how things were different when, you know, when you grew up as opposed to when people now are growing up, you know? Yeah. Yep. And that like just that egg story is so funny because there's so I do so much curation and like adjusting and tweaking for the daily stuff that my parents would never I mean they'd be like don't eat it or they just either make you eat it or you would starve oh and they they would never even consider like oh let me adjust the palate on these but nowadays I feel like we we do that like it's yeah. more you know there's a lot of things have changed yes but I th- think back sometimes that my parents in some aspects had it so easy uh, no car seats. I used to ride in the back where the window sloped, oh you know, yeah. like oh up yeah. on that back thing. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think about that all the time. Just the, the ability to say, go outside. And my parents did that from when I was, I mean, probably as young as four years old, I was just playing outside, but <laughs> there was a big downside to that. Yeah. Like I read all the things that could go wrong kind of did i feel like <laughs> like yeah but is it a bad thing i wonder in retrospect you know is it a bad thing because you right. kind of work out the kinks you know what i mean sure. or you you know you're going through the the ringer you're you're testing all the waters yeah. you know yeah. and, and granted it could be there might be leeches in those waters or you know 
or bacteria or whatever. But you're you're <laughs> or, kind of running them through that stuff. Whereas I feel like yeah, maybe it's you know we're sheltering a little. I don't know. I think we are. I think we are. It's it's difficult on like I would not want my kids to go through what I went through. But yes, I right. think I think yeah, it's hard to find the balance. And I try to kind of back off and give them time to negotiate their own disputes and play outside and I'm in the distance, but yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, I was so free range. It's kind of insane. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah. The idea of going out. I mean, you could do it in Brooklyn. Just send them out. Go yeah. out. Go Just outside. See you later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you make let, it work. Let me know. Here's, here's some, here's some bus fare. Let me know where you end up. Right. Right. Catch a train yeah. where you need to go. You'll make it. Yeah. <laughs> Looking at your CV and like what you've done here, I mean, you've seemed to carve out time to make some art. <laughs> yes, with yeah. three. Absolutely. So how, I, how did you right. make that happen? You I know, always had that fear after having one. I was like, if I'm just totally being honest, as a loving father, and it changed my life, and I'm, I wouldn't change it for anything. Yeah. But sometimes I thought to myself secretly, if I have two, it might be the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think a lot of the motivation to have more than one or more than two, well, one, I think my wife just wanted at least two or three kids, but also was just that rider needs support, like long-term. So we need some people helping and making decisions. And they're both like, they're such good, already such good um, kind of champions of rider. But that's great. um, Yeah, I mean, I think... So I was working pretty much full time as an administrator um, mm-hmm. at a at at Pratt Institute, and um, I and I and somehow making paintings um, through it all. And I look back, and I don't. I kind of don't know how I did it. Like I wonder <laughs> where the time come. But I was. I did have some time in the studio, kind of built into my schedule every week, and then. COVID happened. And during that time, um, I kind of, for a while, just because things were so difficult at work and there, it required so much attention. I, I was like, I was making drawings, like I draw during zoom meetings and I was making like small works on paper. And that was the first time where I wasn't like in the studio making oil paintings for, you know, for a couple days a week. And then yeah, I mean, there's certainly been times where I wasn't sure how I was going to make it work. And the fear is always present, even now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I think that things just kind of picked up in terms of interest during COVID. Yeah. Um, a lot of that has to do with just kind of I spent, I had more, I decided to kind of increase the social media presence and more people mm-hmm. became aware of my work. And I also feel like that's how people were finding kind of learning more about people. And I, you well, know, I've been the only way you could then. That's really. right. Exactly. Yeah. And so that I really benefited from that. I was showing, you know, I've been, you know, pre COVID way, you know, I've been always been lucky enough to show my work, but the interest just picked up so much so that I, I, I quit, I first took leave and then quit my job at Pratt. And that's like, I mean, that's, I'm still, I still teach one class a week, but as far as like Mm -hmm. being an administrator, just stepping away from that, that's the, 
opened up your schedule a little totally bit. <laughs> yeah so even when things go wrong and they always do and i'm needed my wife's works in she's a she's a midwife she delivers babies that's a very busy schedule and it's not as um I cannot make paintings one day, but she can't really not show up for work. Oh, yeah, that's true. So I feel like with the, yeah, so the interest picked up and then just showing more work and making more money off the work, I just was able to step away from that job. And then that's the, that's the thing. I mean, I, that kind of opened up everything. So even if I had a busy week, I'd still get three or four days, big days in the studio. And yeah, um, yeah, and that. I mean, just being able to focus exclusively for the first time in my life kind of on on making paintings, it kind of, you also, you feel that openness provides an opportunity to just kind of expand the work and try new things and, you know, destroy paintings and learn from that and make another painting. So all those things were um, were happening because of that, just because I could focus more. Yeah. It's funny how when it comes to teaching, the administrative side of it, the sort of bureaucratic, like the emails and stuff, like how much that takes. Anyways, that's that's inside baseball stuff. Yeah. So you 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 grew up in the on the west side of the country? Yeah, mostly. I was born in Massachusetts. Both my parents mm-hmm. um, worked at a boarding school in Western Massachusetts, and I, so that's that's where I was born. But I mean, very young. Three years old, we moved to Portland, Oregon, and yeah. that's where I grew up. Yeah, grew up so what Portland. year was that when you moved there? Uh, sorry, math. that's okay. No, <laughs> the Blazers won the championship. I think that was seventy-seven. We so, moved right when they right when they won with Bill Walton. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, so we were born the same year. Um, so Portland at that point, because when did Portland become Portland of you know Portland? Like Portlandia, Portland. Well, yeah. I mean, I when I was in a band, we played. Yeah. Remember the first time we played Portland was probably two thousand, maybe. Yeah. And it was pretty Portlandy. Yeah, I mean, I think it 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 was in the seventies, late seventies as well. I think it was a place where, you know, that encouraged kind of. There's a lot of free thinkers and a lot of. Um, you know, it was a lot of, like, the neighborhood I lived in when we first moved there was, like, lots of hippies, lots of, like, flop houses and kind yeah. of still had that kind of Portland energy, which was pretty, like, open and lot pretty eccentric and um, and dark also some in a way. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, yeah. But, I, you know, growing up there, there was always, like, lots of punks hanging out downtown and and skinheads and tr- people doing drugs and all those things. But I, you know, as a kid, you just accept your environment as normal. And I thought it was pretty, pretty boring. It's only now that I look back at it that I, th- I realize it was a pretty like interesting, um, exciting and kind of weird place to grow up. It was, very, it was right. always very weird. Yeah. Um, but I think it, yeah, late, late nineties, early two thousands, it really became like, the hipster thing kind of happened. And I feel like Portland was kind of ground zero for that. And I had finished, I took me forever to finish my undergrad, but I finished my, I got my, you know, bachelor's degree and I needed a place. I didn't have any money. I was working at a dry cleaner. I lived and I just through a friend through school moved into this warehouse, which I would, 
was like as much of a hipster environment as you could ever imagine. Like <laughs> ground zero white belts everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was definitely felt like I didn't fit into that environment, but it was still, it was mostly artists and musicians. Um, and it was in an area in Portland that is now like, you just never could have done that just cause it's so, ex- it's so expensive and it's yeah, so developed, totally developed, but it was just a warehouse in like, down by the railroad tracks in Northwest Portland and lots of interesting people. And I definitely didn't feel like it was my social scene, but it was, it was, I got to see that kind of firsthand that happening. And I didn't really know, like, I didn't even know what these people were called until someone told me, you know, it was like early days (laughs) of vice magazine and all that. I kind of was like, something's happening here and Portland's changing and a lot more people coming from out of town. So that was definitely like late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. Yeah, the, the music scene there. I mean, is that what kicked off? I would imagine maybe a little more so than visual art. But yes. the music scene there. Because what isn't Kill Rock Stars from Portland? I don't know. Or are they I Washington? Mean, Elliot Smith yeah, went, but, to, went to my high school. There you go. Yeah. That's ground zero for yeah, exactly. all of it. Yep. But yeah, no, there was a fertile, you know, music scene there. There's a lot going on. Definitely. It was a lot. Yeah, and a lot of people coming to town and um i think the art i think you're right i think the art was kind of um like a it was a it was a satellite to the music scene and but you know for a a city at size portland has always had a good amount of galleries compared to if you compare it to other you know medium-sized cities i feel like there's there is an appreciation for the art there are some galleries i think sometimes they're a little limited in what they show kind of Northwesty abstraction and lots of landscape seems to be always be real big there, I think. But yeah, it kind of makes sense for that environment. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I felt like there was kind of a, a decent art scene. And I, I, I was definitely into that. I mean, I was going to openings and um, started showing right before graduate school. I showed with a gallery out there, Frolic Gallery, which is a good gallery. Um, one that I really liked and kind of was in a group show there. And then after graduate school had some shows there. Yeah. Well, so where did your interest in art begin? Like when, how did that happen? Was it school? Was it, you know, some of those punk rockers downtown? (laughs) (laughs) No, I, um, it was just something I kind of drawing was something I felt it kind of came naturally and I was not like a, great student and I didn't love school. I think I was a pretty, I think I was somewhat introverted as a kid and didn't, didn't really love school. And, um, that was just something I could, I felt like I could thrive at. I, early on, I wasn't good at sports. I became good at sports and I kind of focused on that for a while. Um, but yeah, in elementary school, that was just what I was good at. And kind of that's the world. That was where I could kind of, that was my escape as well, I think. Yeah. Um, so I started, my parents were very encouraging. There's a TAG program, it was called, when I was growing up, which was Talented Gifted, which is different than like the G&T here. It was yeah. more specific to like drawing or art or drama or science, something that a kid just kind of had an interest in and you left the school. I remember taking either a school bus or a tax, even a taxi in first grade. And they would take you to the tag center and you would take classes. You signed up for classes. And I think that was like, 
it was it was a public program and lots of interesting kids and I also felt like more like kids like me and I that was huge that was such a huge part of my childhood I mean it meant so much to me and then I did tag like camp in the summer same thing publicly funded yeah. and that was at Grant High School in Portland and then and then I also did summer classes at what was then called the museum school which was at the Portland Art Museum and is now PNCA and is its own thing but I used to take classes there and I don't know who taught it. I just remember the teachers were speaking of punk rock. They were really cool. I think they might've been students at, at the museum school, but they were like not your average art teacher, younger kind of just, they seemed really cool to me. And I took classes with them. I did that in the summers too. And all those things were like huge for me, I think, and encouraging that. So I kind of formed my identity around that being able to draw and drawing different things early on. Yeah, that seems like a fortuitous, you know, like that program just opening your eyes up to something different outside of the day-to-day. And you're lucky, because I, I hadn't thought of this in years, but I was part of, it, it was called GATE in our school, Gifted yeah. and Talented Education. Yeah. And it was just a small room in the same school. Yeah. <laughs> so like half the day, every other day or something like that. Yeah, you just yeah. go in there. Yeah. But I remember they had a computer, which was pretty epic back then yeah you know and you could like noodle around on a computer and yep. like build things or whatever but yeah just having like this idea that there's other people doing different things or a little different in some way yeah and it, you get to just go hang out with them it was kind of like eye-opening you know totally i remember one class the teacher i this I, like I took an animation class where we made our own nice. like 16 millimeter animated film, like that kind oh, of thing, like stop motion cool. where we did our yeah. own, we made this whole circus. This It was amazing. But I remember I had one teacher who he, he brought a bunch of books, art books. And one of them was a book on the, this like kind of underground hippie artist named Rick Griffin. And he mm-hmm. did lots of stuff for like surfer magazine, like a lot of, and like Jimi Hendrix, like eyeballs with fighting oh, nice. with wings. Yeah, and yeah. he did, he, and he did a lot of grateful dead album covers and just to have a book that had his whole catalog. And I didn't take, I, all I did was just sit, take that book every time I went to class and copy it, copy, draw, oh, yeah. make drawings co- based copying those. Things. And he did not care. He didn't care that I wasn't doing what the rest of the class. And he brought the, the book every week and I would just sit down and copy the drawings. And that's the kind of thing it was like, he just saw that that interested me and like stepped away and let me do it. God, if all teachers were like that, I know, I know. <laughs> recognize something that a student likes or yeah. enjoys yeah, and like focuses on that. Totally. Then we might just have a bunch of people in the world who actually like to do what they're doing instead of like forced into something that they hate and they're miserable. Abs- you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that that was, and it was so different. I think we were talking, you know, we were talking about kind of the free range approach to parenting, but also in school, it was like, you fought, you just, the whole idea was you followed the rules or you're a bad kid. And so yeah. like, I was just always like slow. I was always, I always had a runny nose and slow getting out my notebook <laughs> and forgetting my homework. And I feel like that got really frowned upon because I wasn't organized and I wasn't like on top of those things. But then I could go to these classes. Like I even remember the animation class where we didn't quite finish and then there was supposed to be a day where he showed it and when he showed it it was like a a tiger gets free from the cage and then goes and attacks the trapeze artist he finished it and like 
it was amazing because he like shredded <laughs> up the person and the tiger like ate it and it and he finished it. So I was like, that's the kind of people that taught those classes, like really cool right. people. Yeah, 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 that's pretty amazing. So do you? That's like the seed, the creative gestation seed was planted then, probably. Yeah, that, and then my mom's from New York, so my and she was she her she had a really like impactful high school English teacher this guy um and we would go stay with my grandparents but then who were in Westchester but then go into the city and stay with this guy and he was super he was a photographer and super keyed into the art scene and so we then we'd go to the art museum like I have really fond memories like specific memories of seeing like red grooms like ruckus Manhattan and seeing and seeing like the Calder Circus and going to the Frick and seeing those Rembrandt paintings all those things so my parents were pretty pretty good at exposing me to that stuff that's pretty cool yeah you you had the framework but when you went to University of Oregon were you an art major yes so when I finished high school I I went to play i i went to boise state i went to play i didn't go to school i went to play football at boise state i got a football scholarship oh, really? yeah and i played the, i was there for four years on a football scholarship because i i my, wow. like i'm pretty big guy and like um that became kind of my identity in high school i still did lots of art classes i had an amazing art teacher connie spiros at lincoln high school she was mm-hmm. great and encouraged me and didn't care that i was a big football player but i also like sports became really important to me because I kind of got more coordinated and grew into my body. And so I got a football scholarship to a couple different places, chose Boise state and went to Boise, Idaho for football and kind of, I mean, hated it from like the first second I walked on the field. (laughs) Was it the Uh, culture or was it the, uh, it was just everything. I just feel like the hits, (laughs) taking the hits. Like there is a huge, this guy, Kimo von Olhofen, who ended up having like a great... Steelers. Yes, Jets Steelers. and Steelers. Yeah, I, my freshman year, coming on the field at like 250, he's like 320. That's who I went up against in practice every day, and he just destroyed me. Oh, that is, that's not even fair. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Mack truck. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, eventually I got on the field and played some. I, but I was never... My head, I just feel like, other players like their head was really in it and i don't feel like i was where you need to be because it's one of those things like doubt it isn't there's no place for like doubt and psych- oh, no. and psychedelics in college football <laughs> and i was no. i had plenty of both those things so <laughs> it was just yeah this, you've got to be 150 percent in yeah and, in, and even then it's like you know the the rubric of like success or being like hitting that plateau you yes know? like almost impossible so yeah that's that must have been tough it was it was a real struggle for me and i felt like i needed to do it like i said i'd kind of built my identity around it and also it was free school and you know i felt like this great opportunity and people looked up to me and so on um, but i i so i stuck with it for four se- seasons so three and a half years and then quit like the day after our last game in uh whatever, whatever year that was, 96 or 97. Like I just, and our, you know, our, our, our team was falling apart. All the, all the things they say about college football happened, happened there. I'm sure they happen most programs, but like everything from like terrible treatment of women and assault and especially in a place like Boise, I think 
at a t- at that time it was really a commuter school it wasn't like a great academic school but i think it served the community but football was like such a big deal and we had a really good season and then things kind of fell apart but all the things steroids like that was just bad behavior yeah <laughs> They get away with everything, I think, at least back in the day. Because, you know, the football teams and schools like that, those guys are seen as like, oh, don't worry about class. Or like, you you know, you're a star on the team. You'll be fine. Right. Like sleeping in the aisle on a lecture hall and nobody bothered. Like a big, like a 300-pound lineman sleeping in the aisle, nobody bothering them. So it was like, so I kind of... on the team. Yeah. And it's not... I don't want to like... I, I think I steered clear of most of the ter- I did of most of the terrible behavior, but you know I, I would say um, wasn't like thrilled with the person I was becoming and also just the environment didn't really suit me. And also I think you know that that age is when people question things and I'm a curious person and kind of saw my friends and other people kind of traveling and doing drugs and kind of more free kind of environment. And I just, so I was happy when I finally left. Um, and yeah. I, I, so I took, I went, you know, I think with, I moved back to Portland for a while. I went, I worked in, uh, on a fishing boat in Alaska to make some money. Um, sure. <laughs> yep. Seems on brand. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> worked in a, on a fishing boat. Um, for I suppose like that, eight, like six or seven that months, that was awful. Yeah, I did that oh, twice. I, I did that two summers, and then went to Montana, uh, Montana State for a year, and I worked in a lumber yard. I mean, it was it wasn't like it didn't like get super easy because <laughs> I needed money, and I kind of my my stepdad's family kind of is a they're all fishermen. His extended family, they're all fishermen in Alaska, so it wasn't like the worst. But I ended up on a boat with a pretty crazy not so nice skipper and did that for quite a while um and then then went went to montana and then finally moved to transfer to university of oregon and that's when i you know i was studying art this whole time but um at university of oregon i had really good teachers they have a, a bfa year so after your eligible for your bachelor's you can apply for your bfa and that's a mm-hmm. whole nother year it's almost like a mini mfa where you get a studio super senior exactly yeah Victory so you get a, lap, we call it yeah you get a studio you get a thesis show you know like a group yeah. thesis show so it was i did that and i had really good teachers um and especially this guy named ron graf carla vandenberg uh i mean i'm sorry laura vandenberg carla bankson and Ron Graf, but Ron Graf was like my first like real art mentor. He had, yeah. he had gone to Yale, he'd gone to Skowhegan. He was a still life painter at the time, but just really helped me and gave me a lot of confidence. I think he saw something in me and, and gave me a lot. I had, I got a lot out of his kind of comp, confidence to kind of really, that's when I was like, I need, I'm going to pursue this. I want to be an artist. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, what do you think, being in that, because that, that football environment, like if you're a, a player in college, the discipline and the work ethic and the, I don't want to say toxic environment, but it can be a really sort of like grueling environment. 
did that, I mean, those other jobs, did it make it a little easier in a sense of like, oh, okay, I can just, not easy, but I mean, you're almost like, you know, you're putting yourself into an environment you're used to where it's just grueling. Yeah, I I feel that way now. I kind of feel like like when I was working as an administrator or even um, when I was in graduate school and a, and a professor would kind of come, at, come after me, which happens yeah. sometimes, I kind of felt like, well, it's not, you're no, you're no football coach. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You know, you're not like, I mean, those football coaches got like actually physical with the players sometimes. So it wasn't, and then like, yeah, I'm working in Alaska. Things are so kind of tense and high stakes. And especially like when a open, when a fishing season opens and everybody's out cause it's just like the money's out there and they're, it's like very, very intense environment. Uh, you know, I didn't love any of that. I don't feel like football. I kind of, I kind of wanted to like it. I wanted to think of myself as like a working class person and like being able to kind of weather anything. But I had, I really, it wasn't for me. I'm pretty. I think I'm pretty sensitive ultimately, and don't like to be yelled at. And like, don't. I'm not. I'm in a way. I guess I'm not like tough enough for those environments or something you know um or just need i need kind of i don't like the restrictiveness of of those where you kind of don't have a life outside of that even though it's temporary um i feel like and i yeah like i would even when i was in alaska I i still have the sketchbooks i would draw all the time draw the fish that came up on deck and draw everything land the landscape and everything but yeah um, yeah, I, I don't think I wasn't like super suited for those environments. Um, and that was kind of my tech takeaway. You know, I think I kind of idealized growing up in the Pacific Northwest. I kind of idealized this certain, especially at that time, like listening to like, <laughs> listening to like Jack Elliott and Woody Guthrie and kind of idealizing this certain, and, and even like the regional I've talked a lot about this, but like kind of the American regionalism that I was into, the, the kind yeah. of painting that I was into, I feel like all those things like kind of fell apart as I like, these people aren't very nice and this isn't really an environment that suits me. So it was like, uh, yeah, I think it was just kind of forming kind of who I was and yeah. And then just going to University of Oregon, I still had the work, but I worked at like a boys and girls club with young people and it was the first time where I kind of just went to school and focused on art and lived that. I was pretty old by then. I've been bumping around for a while, but just lived a kind of a college, like could be a college student and really just focus on like my classes and my art. And um, that was, yeah, it kind of formed who I was. Yeah. Do you, your work has, I mean, obviously there's a, you have like this, specific aesthetic that runs throughout your work which you know from you know someone looking at the work from the outside it looks as if there's probably something intuitive there like there's it might be just a way that you like to work now maybe you've just fine-tuned that or got influenced by certain people over the years and it got there but when you're making like say the drawing of the fish that is on the flopping around on the deck yeah is it are you, do you have like a specific style? Is it kind of like in the vein of the way you draw or paint now? Or is it just more straightforward, like, you know, 
quick sketch or something? Oh, I think it had a lot to do with like the artists I was looking at and the artists. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, you know, I couldn't narrow it down to one artist um, or one time period. That's for sure. But nor should you. No, no, of course. But I do think that there's this both like American artists that came from like American social realism artists yeah. like Ben Sean, like were really important to me. And then also regional American regionalists. Like, so, I mean like Jacob Lawrence was, I loved his work. I loved, um, Thomas Hart Benton. I love Thomas Hart Benton. Yep. I did. <laughs> I you're going to be like, Nope. Got it. No, I did. I mean, I kind of, yeah, it was one of my favorite artists when I was younger. Yeah. And I think like, so I think that's like, that did become kind of who I was. But then I realized quickly in graduate school that you, you know, um, at the, especially at the time I went to graduate school. So I went, so I went to University of Oregon, stopped, went, moved back to Portland for a while, um, making art, trying to get in galleries. You know, I mentioned I lived in that warehouse for part of the time mm-hmm. and then moved and then got into Pratt Institute and went to Pratt for graduate school. Now, what and made I, you apply to Pratt? I mean, that's way other side of the country. Yeah, I was... was it those I, old visits to museums or something, you know? I wanted to go to school in New York. Um, it just felt like that was the goal. So I applied mostly schools around here. In fact, I applied to Brooklyn College because Leonard, Ard- Leonard Anderson, I liked his... I really liked his work at the mm-hmm. time. And he taught at Brooklyn College. So I was like, well, that, that'd be cool to go study with him. And I think he retired just right when my was applying. I think he retired. Anyway, I felt really lucky to get into Pratt. And I feel like Pratt taught me. It really, it served me. But, you know, going in there, I, like when, you know, which happens, you go around the class and you talk about, they often call it like your artistic parents or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say something like, Thomas Hart Benton and people look at me like I had two heads you know and I think I would distance myself from Thomas Hart Benton now I but yeah I I learned kind of looking at Grant Wood Thomas Hart Benton John Stuart Curry and even like Edward Hopper John Sloan you know George Bellows those yeah. American painters what's Ash- wrong with that is that what the pause was about when I asked you and you were like and then well, you respond because there's a little no, bit of no, like you I, I think kind of my project is kind of re in a way i mean i i feel like i paint my own way and it and it's all, course, obviously yeah. you just kind of absorb all these things and you kind of learn how to make things and i think a big part of it was i at a certain point after graduate school in graduate school i mostly worked from either a still life that was in my studio or i'd set something up and I would, since I couldn't really hire models, I'd use photographs. So it was, that's what I was working from. And I think after graduate school, I stopped using sources. So I just make lots of drawings and lots of studies and kind of figure it out for myself and work from my head and refuse yeah. to, at this point, I don't, I, everything has to come from my head. I don't use like photographic sources. And I feel like that's really important. So there is this kind of generalized quality to what I'm painting and an invented quality, which is kind of like, that's, but I also want like a light directional light source and I want it to right. feel like real forms. Yeah. For be, you know, I don't know that I always get there, but, um, 
I think that's kind of where some of the um, generalized things, like the kind of round, like kind of broad, um, like rotund generalized forms come from. Um, but yeah, I think that the, I really kind of learned to embrace that kind of that influence in my work because, and then also I think in a certain extent, my work's kind of reappropriating, reimagining because those are, those are American archetypes. That's kind of, I feel like those, especially like some of the, that American regionalism was kind of in tandem with a folk revival and it was kind of reimagining kind of our history, whether it was accurate or not, or so I think that re, and creating kind of new folk heroes and creating like America, it was like American myth building. And I think that's, I'm super interested in that. And so I think I'm yeah. kind of like, how do I take, how do I take some of these images and archetypes? And then based on all these experiences we've been talking about, um, cause I, I did, I grew up in a pretty, um, like a, a, an environment that was kind of really male, like masculine kind of hard knocks environment to some extent, yeah. even though, you know, I had parents that encouraged, you know, let me have emotions and encourage sensitivity. I still kind of ended up in this environment. And I, I think I see it. I see the kind of, it was hard. It was difficult for me and it didn't, there wasn't much room for vulnerability. So I guess I'm kind of, trying to kind of reimagine a more kind of vulnerable archetype, I guess. Yeah. And it's interesting that in being in dialogue with that kind of work from that era, it really pushes against the sort of like masculinity or this, you know, cause like the, the WPA and the industrial revolution, it's yes. like the men going out and like earning the money and getting yes. these jobs all that stuff, you yeah. know what I mean? And then subverting that by, injecting a sort of retroactive kind of like imagining of a time or a feel of like a, a relationship to what is quote unquote Americana, but injecting sensitivity and some um, imagination and almost like escapism in a way, you know, at least that's what I see in the work. Yeah, I think so. I kind of asking you, but yep. Like some weirdness and some quirkiness. And then yeah. also, um, yeah, I think I think that's right. But and also kind of making them all my almost all my figures are like if you think about that work they were active. There was like a there they were engaged and they were they were kind of imposing the activity. And my right. figures are passive. The activity is happening to them or at them and so instead of making them kind of active kind of like you said, welders and pouring, you know, molten steel and, and, um, you know, building buildings and all those things. My guys are just kind of laying around or, <laughs> you know, things are just happening to them. They're no yeah. longer kind of actively engaged. And I think that so much, so much about American identity had to do with region and vocation. And I think yeah. that that's been lost too. I think so. I think, it's so funny that like people dress up. It's almost like it's like they're putting on their like their like train engineer costume or their welding costume. Like everybody, like you know, you walk around a college campus, everybody's got like keys hanging from their belts yeah. on their on their dickies, you know. Yeah, Carhartt. Yeah. yeah, and I just I feel like we kind of at this point, 
where manufacturing, a lot of it has disappeared. And I feel like that idea where you're like identity and both your kind of constructed identity and that, and kind of the identity that you're kind of born into so much of it had to do with region and vocation. I know that there's still some of that, but I think so much of it is just where we kind of, it's artifice. We kind of project that we kind of dress up for that role and it's, we're kind of not tied to these specific things. And I think that creates a lot of confusion. I think we're confused. I think we're kind of groping for who we are, especially I think, um, you know, young men or people, who identify as male or whatever that they at a young age, I think that there's not a clear kind of, there's not a clear kind of path and a clear kind of link to this history. And I think that that's probably a good thing, but I also think it creates some strife and identity crisis. I think we're kind of dealing, we're dealing with, I think it's, it's progress, but there's also, I think we're dealing with the fallout and I'm kind of interested in, I'm not interested in like proposing, an answer, a new path. I'm more interested in kind of what does this look like right now? Right. And, and you know that I think part of that is because we still have a generation of people around who are completely separated from that kind of, not only maybe that ideology or that freedom of ideology and also the technology to expose people to so much more. Cause back in the day you didn't have the ability, like you, you, you kind of like, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh and you kind of get the vibe of who's around you. Yeah. You don't have that. I mean, a little bit, I guess, in movies or TV, but not yeah. to the extent of the internet. I mean, you know, you can, you know what people, you know, in certain areas of South Korea are like dressing like and what it's relationship to, you know what I mean? It, you, you can travel anywhere in your mind like instantly and just get influence and it, yes. it's so separated from that. I mean, cowboys dress like cowboys in the beginning because it worked. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's right. The and then when people stop doing out of their that, eyes and yeah, yeah, it's just. And, but that happens in art as well. You know, like yeah. those WPA murals were made through funding that was produced, you know, or given by the government yeah. to promote a sort, a certain storytelling of, you know, this expansion and industrialization of yeah. our nation into that's a greater right. future. Right, and, and connect that us. Took a left turn connect us with the history, like a sense of yeah. pride about the history. So yes. they created these folk heroes, these kind of folk heroes, and this idea that we're part of this thing linking back. And I think that now it's like, I, I feel like it's ever, I'm both, even in like, I feel like it's like, how can I, for a lot of people who are kind of angry about who feel kind of like that, that identity is being infringed on or who feel kind of, you know, this whole idea, (laughs) this kind of Trumpian idea of that, that we're no longer connected to our past, but it's also kind of like, how can I, it's not, you're not dressing like a, like a dock worker. You're just dressing like an asshole. It's like, how can I project (laughs) that I'm an asshole? (laughs) You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think that, you know, those people are often just more afraid of the other thing. And instead of feeling like we're losing a connection to the past and that's completely being erased, they're just yep. like, well, there's no room for anything else besides what I want to think. Or yeah, whatever. it's more about intolerance. It's more that about kind of, limiting, oh, sorry, limiting possibilities and intolerance. Yeah. And I do think, but I think there's that combined with, I do think there's a certain s- segment of this country that like they 
work on the places where like electricity comes from or where livestock yeah. comes from or where our food comes from. And, and I do think there's such a disconnect with a lot of most of the country, like the urban centers, there's such a disconnect from where those things come from. And I think that's also part of the, um, whatever the split or the resentment. Yeah, Some completely. of it comes from that too. Yeah. It's like yeah. when you're out, you know, working on the farm, 12 to 14 hours a day, you don't have time to think about identity politics or your fashion choices and what that says about you as a human. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're just kind of like just doing the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And but that, that idea of subverting that I think your work is, or maybe it's not subversion, but it wasn't about, but of tweaking the narrative or like using a sort of shell of something that we're familiar with historically, but then injecting a different viewpoint into it. Yeah. I and mean, that was kind of like always happening, maybe not in the four, but like I would imagine I, I'm guessing that you might have liked or been interested in Hunter Thompson. Yeah. At a point. Yes. Because yep. I feel like he's an interesting, but like he kind of played the part of the male reporter guy and yeah. into sports or whatever. But at the same time was, you know, just being a journalist, but then throwing the whole thing upside down on its head and just yeah. subverting it, you know, in a yep. really interesting way, like using the shell of journalism, but then just like completely exploding it. That's right. Yes. And kind of, and also playing the part in a, in a, um, he also kind of, he kind of dressed the part and everything, but the whole bit, the whole thing. Yes. You know, I, yeah, my, my show that just came down, um, at Hess Flato here in New York was called Hank Stamper's bones. And Hank Stamper is the protagonist or, you know, one of the main characters in Ken Kesey's book, sometimes a great notion. Mm -hmm. And, and Ken Kesey is from Oregon He's from Eugene, Oregon. He went to University of Oregon and then went on to, he, you know, studied writing there. And he was an athlete. He was a wrestler, like a really good wrestler, like a state champion wrestler, I think. Um, all those things are related to, and I, that's why I kind of called it that. I was thinking that that would bring, and, Ken, and Hank Stamper himself was this, they call him Jippo Loggers. They were, his family was this kind of renegade logging family who was not union and cut down wood, but not, didn't work for a specific mill. And they're kind of union busters in the story on the Oregon coast. Um, and that's kind of, you know, it's kind of like the, it's, it's one of the kind of Oregon novels that, you know, as a young person you would read. Yeah. Um, and so Ken Kesey then becomes this, he writes those two books and then becomes this kind of, you know, psychedelic guru <laughs> like, electric kool-aid acid yeah that's about him yeah, I mean, yeah that's and then you know he was like the west coast kind of more irreverent uh, wilder kind of timothy leary right and he's still like people love him he's like idealized i mean there, there's this whole and that's like a whole lot different kind of kind of because I really, yeah, especially with this last show, I was thinking a lot about kind of like West, the West Coast and West, the West part of America and the, that dynamic, like both the kind of like logging and working class dynamic, but also kind of at the same time, what came out of the mid 60s and then 
the psychedelic revolution and like these gurus that popped up all over the yeah. West Coast and that and how kind of fraught that was and how that led to bad places and right. and um, just the kind of searching that searching. So I kind of think of a lot of my figures as kind of seekers, especially in this last show, as these kind of these kind of hapless seekers. And then uh, there's a couple paintings where I kind of propose like this guru who's just like a dead like an empty shell, <laughs> you know, like an empty shell in a cave. Yeah. They're trying to find him. It's the last old white guy that has this secret knowledge. That's kind of what, it's not a, they're not narrative paintings, but that's kind of the narration that was going on in my head. And I was thinking about that. And so that's why I felt like Ken Kesey was kind of an interesting tie in because the Merry Pranksters and, you know, we could expand it to other yeah. kind of the beat generation. Those guys still, they behave very badly and they got away with it because they were still white white guys that kind of got to do whatever they wanted and then you know they definitely definitely challenge convention i think we're all better for it but it's just i all those things it's just interesting to me I, so i think about those things yeah no it, it feels like it's funny because you you feel like you've built this world of these figures or these I don't know whoever they are like it, it's almost like there's these different figures but it's like one person or one idea of a person in a way yeah and you know in this world that they're living in but it does there's so many connection points to thinking about you know the current situation and how different these sort of but then in thinking of COVID or something like solitude there's, there's a feeling of like solitude to a lot of these characters like yeah. they're just alone in the world you know yeah yep. which uh what, what was that book about God, sorry my brain um the book about the guy who goes and does peyote like in the Southwest or in Mexico, I can't think of the name of it, but it feels like that. Like some of the yeah. iconography feels yeah. like that being alone and like expanding your mind, but then being isolated. And yeah, I don't know. It's like, um, yeah, it, it, I can totally, it's so interesting that this combination of like, you know, college football and then mind altering hallucinogenics <laughs> and like yeah. brain expansion, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like it's not, it, it, it happens. There's, there's athletes who absolutely, who, you know, engage in that. But then it's funny because I, I mean, I love sports. I'm, yep. I, you know, I, I'm very involved in soccer and, you know, so many people think like art is the antithesis of sports or something, you know, like, yeah. You know, there's the jocks on one side and the yep. artist nerds on the other side or whatever. Yep. I don't think that's the case at all. I think there's a lot of creativity enters both. You, as you know, some yeah. of the best football players, best athletes are very creative. Sure. Absolutely. Same with like the, the best artists, very yep. creative, hard and vice versa. Yep. Of course, we think athletes are hardworking, of course. Yeah. But some of the best creative artists are very hardworking. Oh, you know, they have a totally. ritual. They, they're they're obsessed about going to the studio or, or working or practice. I love that idea of the, the word. At first I was always a little annoyed when people rev referred to their work as their practice. I don't know why it just seemed like yeah. put on or something, but I love the idea of practice just going like John Coltrane played his saxophone every single day. Like he just yep. practiced all the time, you know, that's kind of what it is. Absolutely. And I, I think I've taken that. I, I don't know for, I don't know if you call it a work ethic, but where I believe like just through doing, I can get better. And I also feel yeah. like through doing, like I've, it's never been, I feel like I've never kind of maneuvered in this world gracefully. It's always been kind of, 
uh, I just, you know, I, I, like after I mentioned kind of getting away from working from an image or from a still life and trying to work from my head and how that was so difficult for me. And I didn't know how to do it other than like make one terrible painting after another and, <laughs> and just keep going and kind of hope I got somewhere. And it took a couple years, really very frustrating years before I got to where I kind of got onto something and felt like I could make a painting again. Um, so, but it's, yeah, it's just, I just, I just kind of like, I'll just keep going. I'll just, you know, it's like, it's almost like, it is kind of like, like practice, like a, a practice in a sense of like, yeah, I mean, it does relate to that. And I think I've carried that with me. And then, um, yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no. No, I was going to make this comment. I don't know if you could tell me if this is completely off. But in looking at the work, I yeah. feel like that what you said just resonated. Like it feels like the figures aren't comfortable, or they're or they feel clunky in the world yeah. until they become the world. So, mm -hmm. like that painting heap of the, you know, I love that painting of the person who just becomes the foliage, and it happens. There's like people in the sky or people will become trees or stumps. Yeah, and stuff. It right. feels like their faces, whenever they become one with the landscape or they yeah. become a landscape seems yep. very calming or like they're, and then there's like the metaphor of like, Oh, probably when we pass, like yes. life is very tense and a struggle. Yes. It's like this awkward yeah. relationship of not knowing what the hell we're doing here. Yeah. And then probably when we move on, it's probably you just become one with the earth and you're just more, it, it is just, I mean, that's, many people hope like that when someone passes, you always hear like, may they, you know, rest in peace or, yeah, may they, yeah, yeah. you know, just totally. now they can rest or something. Yeah. And you wonder if there's something there, you know, like if that's, if that's happens. You know? Totally. I think that I think a lot about like failure and I kind of think of them as kind of failures. And I think that, but then there's like this, there is like an overcoming with like the ultimate failure of death, you know, like kind of as they're seeking and they don't make it because this idea doesn't exist. So I have the, yes, heap is a good one. I think it's the only one where the eyes are open and he kind of see it, there is like some, it's almost like he wakes up. It's like this figure wakes up to be mm -hmm. kind of as he becomes like, as the decomposition <laughs> happens, it's like, yeah. um, there's another painting called turning. Mm -hmm. where it's just a head that's kind of has grass growing out of it and there's a campfire and it's right next to a stump. I really mm -hmm. like the the use of stumps because they kind of feel like a monument for something that's past, like an idea yeah. that's past or but they also kind of are like a body in themselves and I like right. that. So it's in front of a stump and it and it's and it's this this head that's kind of this head that's like decomposing to some extent and um yeah, to me that's like it's like this guy didn't, he didn't find what he was looking for, but then through yeah. death, maybe he did, I think yeah. is the idea. And, um, when I think of kind of the models, you know, there's a story, one of my paintings called the moldering as a reference to John Brown, you know, and then John Brown's March, you know, John Brown's body is a moldering in the ground. It's kind of like a guy who's coming back out of the grave. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how apparent it is, but it says John Brown on the grave. So the abolitionist, John Brown, who is kind of both this symbol of 
kind of the ultimate, what might maybe should be the ultimate kind of dedication to like racial and social justice. Um, Cause he's, he was willing to die for it. But right. at the same time he was seen as this, even in his time, even by other abolitionists as this like kind of extremist extremist. And ultimately he failed, but he helped inspire events that would lead to the civil war. So he failed in his own lifetime and he, he was, you know, hanged. But there's something about that story, and then the fact that his sons, Owen, and I forget his other son's name, but they they moved away. I think their lives were probably at danger, in danger, and they moved to the West Coast. And my younger brother lives just outside of Pasadena, California. He lives in an area called, um, oh, geez, I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, kind of northeastern Los Angeles, Altadena. And okay. right neither, up on the mountain, is a a placard because Owen and his brother, John Brown's son, they, they went there to build a monument for John Brown. And, but they also had no money and it was, it was a really cold winter and they both died and they never built the monument. So there's this kind of passing down this lineage of failure, you know, because they also failed and kind of trying to honor their father and what he did. They also failed. And, but, but we, but their, their ambition was admirable but they've failed, failed terribly. And there's something about that, that I think, I think that's right. I think there's this, I like to present kind of this struggle, but also kind of this search and this searching in vain. And then this kind of at at peace on the other side of it. Yeah. Right. Because you can't have that success if you don't fail. Like you, you open up the door of opportunity of succeeding in something through failure. Usually. I mean, there's that attitude in art. I mean, it's been much more celebrated in recent years than, than days of old that, you know, you just fail, like you have to make mistakes and fail to get yeah. better, you know, that's and right. in sports, that's like, you know, that's like a cardinal rule is like, you have to like not be afraid to fail out there to, you know, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. That's right. And I think as a athlete, you know, I was not, I was not, I was a decent college football player, but I was a pretty good high school athlete. I played basketball and football and you know, good enough to get recruited and so on. Um, but I was, I would think I was always awkward. Like I wasn't, even though I like relatively agile, I, I moved kind of awkwardly. And I feel like, I feel like I kind of found my way into success in sports in my own way, oddly enough, like kind of, and I always, I really like those athletes. Like I look for athletes, undersized athletes or athletes that move a little differently or a little more, you know, a little, more slowly or whatever. I, yeah, yeah. I always kind of, that's, those are the, the athletes I root for. Oh, know. immediately my Rolodex starts going of like minute bowl, just the way that guy <laughs> stood. You're like, there's yes. no way he could be. That's right. I mean, obviously his height, but right. you know, just as an athlete, you're like no chance. Or I don't know if you like soccer at all. To some extent. But there was, yeah. There was a British player and he has a podcast now. Like he's, he's very involved in the game post career, but yeah. his name is Peter Crouch. And yeah. he was this like, yes. you know, weird, ginormous, skinny, skinny, yeah. he would celebrate and do the robot. And it was hilarious. It was as quirky <laughs> as can be, Yeah, yeah, totally. but really an amazing player. You know totally. what I mean? It's so yes. funny to see people like that who don't fit the mold, but are just, you know, incredible. Yes. Like I'm a, I was like Magic Johnson's a good example. I mean, Magic yeah. obviously was a great athlete and Larry Bird, uh, um, great athletes, but you know, 
people think of Showtime, whatever they think of Matt. He just spent so much time backing in because he was so tall. Yeah. I mean, he, he really, not many point guards play with their back to the basket, but he did quite a bit when they would yeah. have to slow down and set up an offense because it was to his advantage to kind of post up whoever was guarding him and work the court from there. And I always loved that. And Bird, obviously, Larry Bird's like another great example because he moved so awkwardly. But yeah. where he where he was great was kind of anticipating where the ball was going. He was a great passer, had really quick hands. Or, And then, like, I was a huge, like, Wayne, Wayne Rooney fan. Oh, yeah, Wayne Rooney. <laughs> Despite all his underachieving and... I just always liked him and always liked kind of what a bull he was out there. Yeah. yeah. Just, you know, just a, a, like a bag of rocks, you know, like a big. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, yeah. I, for some reason, uh, it popped into my head. Uh, like John Daly, the golfer. Remember Grip It and Rip yeah, It? Yeah, of course. <laughs> he would like have beer cans in his like golf bag. <laughs> yeah, John Daly. It's amazing. Yeah. Like that yeah. sort of, all right, we're, we're drawing a lot of interesting yeah. vague parallels here yes. to your aesthetic and your work. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, oh, this is what I want to ask too. Music, obviously exposed to it young. What's the lineage there? How does it, like when you're working these days, is music still a big part of things or do you like it in the studio? Yeah, I I love listening to music, but it's more like if I'm on a run or if I'm driving. I think in the studio more, I like to listen to people talking, so I listen to tons of podcasts. Yeah. Sometimes I listen to music, and I always feel like it's good when I do, but if there's just a lot of hours to fill, I like listening to people talk, interviews yeah. and podcasts and things like that, or books. I listen to like lots of books, mainly nonfiction, but I like listening to books. Um, but music's been, it's huge. I mean, my... My dad, um, it was never his career, but he was a, uh, he's still like, plays the banjo, kind of old timey. He's nice. very interested in like old timey roots. No, more like, see, <laughs> you say bluegrass, get me in trouble. <laughs> no, he's kind of like pre bluegrass, kind of more slowed down, more like in a circle session, kind of more percussive. Like his type of banjo is, doesn't have a resignator, so it's not twangy it's more like okay. a percussion instrument it's more pl yeah. like plucky i guess and um that kind of music like i was exposed to that really early and then i was really into like the folk revival i still listen to like like fred neal and jackson c frank and you know i grew up listening to bob dylan so i like that music and then but i mean i like all kinds of i like all kinds of music um, do you feel like there's anyone these days making music that f obviously is not that vein of folk but feels it gives you a similar kind of essence i mean i i am the worst person to talk about what's happening these days because i don't in folk it was never my yeah thing. not that i don't like it i just never it was one of the few genres of music i just didn't dip into and like bob dylan obviously is a genius the guy's yeah. amazing but i just yeah. never did the deep dive on dylan yeah yeah, I really like John Prine, but I'd say like contemporary musicians, there's a there's a lot of interesting music coming out of Ireland where they're kind of mm -hmm. updating traditional Irish music. Like I was a big Pogues fan, but they're kind of more raucous. But there's a band called Ye Vagabonds that I really like. Um, they're Irish. And then, but man, I think there's so much out there that I don't know about just because I kind of, my taste kind of stopped. 
I still, I think people our age, I think a lot of time we listen, like I still listen to like red flags of aging. (laughs) Yeah. You just kind of go back to like what you were listening to in high school. So I listen to like Neil Young. I listen to the clash. I listen to, um, there are more, you know, all kinds of, you know, the kind of folk music that was happening. But I, I, um, I really like Justin Vernon. I don't know. I don't even know kind of where he sits in like, popular music but i love bon Iver and i love justin vernon so i, oh, I listen yeah. to kind of everything he puts out um but I, I don't know too much about contemporary music i was also really into hip-hop like in college and but also like when i listen to other than like a group like run the jewels i don't really know what's happening now at all i'm just lost when i hear people talk about people but i really like like i come from like west coast like dell and and the whole this whole movement called quantum and freestyle Fo- fellowship and that kind of i was really the coup groups like that i was really into in yeah. college so um souls of mischief like that what was happening in the bay area what was happening in los angeles um and and i kind of that's where my knowledge stops, but I still listen to a lot of that stuff now. Right. Yeah. You know, I was thinking of, of some, some music stuff and I was, do you, I don't know if you ever listened to the band Lamb Chop. Do you remember yeah. that band? Love it. I love it. For some yeah. reason they popped in or like the yeah, shows, yeah. like different stuff like that to where, you know, there's a, a little, I guess there's a little bit of Americana to it, you know, a little dipping so. into history, but it's quirky in a way that's like not, just straightforward you know like remember squirrel nut zippers they just did kind of like dixieland like right totally yeah that sort of thing but th- yeah. those bands like lamb chop it's like what the hell is it you know what i mean like it's yeah i really like i really like lamb chop and also smog. um you probably like smog smog oh yeah and i love um yes absolutely and uh what's it? uh bill ha- bill callahan love bill, bill callahan. Callahan. yeah 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 and then um Yes. I don't really know the shins, but I, um, Bonnie Prince Billy, I like that oh, music man. a lot. The Will Oldham? Yeah, that, yeah. I could totally, why didn't I think of that? Yeah. Did you listen to them back? Because I remember when he was um, Palace Brothers. Like, no, you know how he not, went through all these name I, iterations. I, I don't know, actually. <laughs> Have you ever seen him in that movie Made One? No. Oh, dude, you gotta see it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, we could but, talk about... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I was just going to say his early stuff you got. Yeah. I mean, Bonnie Prince Billy is g- great. Yeah. But when he was Palace Brothers, that is some of the most soul-crushing. Oh, check it out. Like, I think you would really be into it. I remember driving across the country after high school with some friends in a car with like $40. And we were like camping at campsites and listening to that old Palace Brothers record in somewhere like Utah in the middle yeah. of nowhere. And it no music has felt more right than that yes. did in that place you know yes definitely i mean just recently i've been listening because he put out so much music um to neil young i really like the band um yeah um and obviously i feel like there's a whole kind of movement of music that came out of younger people that were influenced by like the band or nick drake and yeah um but yes i really like bill callahan a lot listen to we a played lot of some music. show the band i was in played some shows i think maybe two or three if i'm not mistaken um but is remember seeing him and sitting like you know three feet away and it was just him and a guitar yeah and uh it's pretty good stuff 
Yeah, yeah, I think so too, and 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 very unique. Um, yeah, and then also like a lot of like I really like like acoustic fingerstyle blues, and there's a lineage there. Like I love John Fahey, but he came oh, out yeah. of like Reverend Gary Davis and Mississippi John Hurt, that kind of fingerstyle approach, and then Leo Kotke, who was kind of came after John Fahey, but I love John Fahey. I love that kind of, and I love Reverend Gary Davis. I love that kind of, there's a certain melodic kind of finger style blues that came out of the deep South that I really like. Yeah. I was looking at your work. I have this affliction where music pops into my head and I yeah. think there was a little Robert Johnson popped in at one point. Uh, <laughs> I think that the, the myth, I'm really interested in the myth. You oh, know, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I've went to a talk once, um, on an author who wrote about Robert Johnson was kind of interested to know that he, his myth and his prominence came from rediscovery because never really achieved. I mean, he's amazing and very unique and obviously someone saw something in him. Um, but also that he was like, you know, he, well, he was like wore like beautiful suits and like, he was not like, I think we kind of think of him as this, tied to like poverty and the deep south and mississippi and so on but i think he was like he like dressed up and like was you know like i think he he was like a he was challenging convention and so it's interesting i feel like we kind of who he was and kind of how what his ambitions were are different than how he's kind of remembered i mean regardless his music's amazing but i oh, yeah. i love that i love those kind of that kind of American myth, you know, and then Bob Dylan kind of took that. He like, he tried to this Jewish kid from a small town in Minnesota. And then, but he would say like, he traveled with the circus and, you know, kind of right. limit kind of what was known about him. And like, you know, he kind of it's tried to mystique. Re- yeah. Mystique. He like tried to recreate the kind of Robert Johnson myth. And also there's this idea that, you know, he was in Minnesota um, there's like a Minnesota scene, like Kerner Ray and Glover were a couple, three like blues folk musicians happening in, in, in Minneapolis or St. Paul. And that, that Robert, that Bob Dylan went to New York, did okay, came back. And there was like, did he sell a soul to the devil? Because he's a different, completely different musician now. And he completely right. different, he, how he plays guitar and how he sings and how he approaches everything is. So he kind of, he liked to pull, I think he liked to kind of pull up those myths. Yeah. So you yeah. just had the show that mm-hmm. wrapped up. So what do yep. you, I mean, do you take some downtime? Are you working on something else? You got anything coming? Like what can, where can people see, find out? Yeah. About so I, um, yeah, I just had this show at Hesflato, um, which was great, great experience. And then, yeah, I do take, I don't take downtime, but I start, you know, I kind of have to start, I want new imagery and I want to kind of, you know, I do lots of versions of similar paintings kind of because I feel like I need, like there's more to it, like there's more potential. So I often do like a couple versions till I feel like it's enough and move on. And I kind of feel like I'm moving on right now from all of those, you know, like kind of there was a painting called Homestead, Heap that you mentioned, like all these paintings were kind of the, felt like I got to where I needed to get with that imagery. And now I'm going to try something different. So, you know, a shift, I'm still be making my paintings in the way I make them, but I do want to kind of shift things. So that takes, that just takes time because it takes, you know, I, I watch lots of movies and kind of let things seep in, um, kind of 
try and pick the right movies that are going to resonate. And then a lot of drawing, a lot of working on paper. And I kind of, I have a big, big slab of homosote up on my wall that I cover. And then once I feel like it's covered, then I start making oil, bigger oil paintings based on those images, kind of pick and choose nice. and work from those. And then there's a lot of self-discovery with each iteration. So yes, I'm working on that. I'll have a, I'm planning to have a show at M and MB, M plus B, M and B gallery, which is in Los Angeles um, mm-hmm. next fall. Um, nice. And I'll have a, you know, I'll, you know, do some art fairs and group shows, I'm sure along the way. So I have yes. a, have a painting that I'm almost done with that'll be in Miami at Untitled with L21, which is a gallery nice. I've worked with for a couple of years. Um, yeah. And then that show in about a year from now, somewhere, somewhere next fall at M&B. Nice. Yeah. Well, um, the work's great. It was great talking to you and meeting you. And uh, thanks again for doing it. You bet. That was a great conversation. Great, great prompts and questions. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. You bet. Sound Division is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast by checking out soundvisionpodcast.com. You can check out more images on Instagram at Podcast. Please, if you can, leave a rating and review wherever you get this podcast. It really helps spread the word and uh, populates the podcast into people's feeds who might be interested in hearing these artist stories. So, Giving it a rating and review really helps. If you can take out a couple minutes to do that, it's much appreciated. You can also check out the official book for the podcast, Why I Make Art, at altillieditions.com. Many thanks to Fulcrum for their coffee, Golden for the paint, and Soho Art Materials for the stretchers. Check out all their stuff online. Many thanks to you for listening. We've got some great episodes coming up, so make sure you stay tuned. Oh, 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 oh,